Welcome to another week of Holy Highlights as uh, Jeff Schooley and I sit down and talk about each other's sermons. And uh, so Jeff, I want, why don't you go ahead and get us started and you can begin to, to delve deeper into the questions that maybe you have for me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I want to begin by first saying really great sermon podcast and sermon uh, worship video this week. Just really, really great. Um, and I thought for this week that I might try a brief summary uh, of what you and and uh, Josh and Mara were were discussing. And I, I want to be clear to anybody who's watching this: this is not going to be a comprehensive summary. Um, uh, I'm not that smart, but it's more really a reflection of what stood out and spoke to me. And so, if I don't get to the thing that you're remembering, dear viewer, it's probably because Jesus was having us pay attention to different things and, right. and he has his reasons for that. So what I heard was a reminder that my emotions, whatever they might be, confusion, sorrow, frustration, anger, loneliness, betrayal, anything, are part of what makes me fully human and more so that Jesus honors this aspect of my humanity in his humanity. Yes. Um, especially we see in his fear and sense of isolation uh, in Gethsemane. Yes. And then that it isn't uh, only a reflection of Jesus's humanity, but also, especially in Jesus's ultimate submission, a reflection of his deity. And I really liked that, Paul. I really love that you held those two aspects of Jesus, what they taught us in seminary to call the hypostatic union, we like to create fancy words to right. feel good about ourselves. Uh, that you held the two aspects of this hypostatic union together in a really theologically thoughtful and faithful way. Um, and so again, not a comprehensive summary, but just the things that in listening to and then even reflecting on afterward uh, just continue to stand out to me. Right. Um, so we're going to uh, get to everything, I think, uh, that you covered, or at least most of it, I, I'd say. Um, but I just wanted to affirm for you, like, what your your message spoke to me, not only as a pastor, but as just a fellow disciple. I appreciate that. So yeah, thank you, and uh, thank Josh and Mara too. Uh, it was really, it was a wonderful thing for me to engage yesterday afternoon. So you ready for some questions? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, early on in the podcast, and I'll try to designate when I'm talking about podcast stuff or video stuff, but early on in the podcast, you note that Jesus's three closest friends keep abandoning him to their own need for sleep. Right. And I'm wondering, in a sermon that focused so much on what makes us human, especially our feebleness, if we shouldn't be kind to these three disciples, like, aren't they just also displaying their own limitations as humans. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and I don't think Jesus is unduly harsh with them either. I think Jesus is pretty kind to them in the midst of it. Uh, you know, there, there's good reason for him to be sleepy. I mean, it's been a long week. Uh, they're away from home. They've had a big meal and whatever else they had with that big meal. Uh, they're, they're in a cool garden. It's late at night. They're sitting waiting. And, and, 
and and I believe they probably were trying to pray, but but most of us have had experiences where we're trying to pray, our eyes are closed, we're internalizing things, and and we fall asleep. They don't see the disaster that's around the bend. They they don't understand that. So so it's pretty natural, and, and I do believe Jesus is is really not overbearing with them, even though they have they they they've abandoned him in his darkest hour. He needs them. He desperately needs them. But, but I think what it speaks to us is, e even in our humanness, we need to be aware of those opportunities. That, that I think if anything, the narrative shows us, okay, yeah, maybe there's an excuse for, for not being aware. Maybe there's an excuse for, for being sleepy here or, or whatever the circumstance is. But Jesus really needed them. And, and there are circumstances all of us have where people really need us and there may be valid excuses for why we miss it, uh, but, but I think there's an invitation in this passage to pay closer attention. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I agree with you. I, I think they're just simply being human, <laughs> sleepy, yeah. full-billied humans, uh, much like I would be, uh, but, but there definitely is a, a call in that passage to be more aware, because they miss it. And I guess what I realize is how often I've missed it. Right. And I guess if there's any good news in that is that like, it's not like they miss it once and then Jesus just like waves them off and says, you know, forget about you guys. Like he keeps showing back up. Like he keeps giving us an opportunity to be more aware. And, and, and I don't know if that qualifies as grace per se, but I think that's definitely uh, a sign of mercy. I think um, you call that the grace snooze button. The grace snooze button. There you go. Um, yeah. So next time you oversleep a morning meeting yeah. at the church, you can just be like, I hit that grace news button one too many times, but yeah, that's right. you know, be kind to me like Jesus was. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I thought Josh made a really good point when he noted that, uh, we often say we sin because we're human, mm -hmm. but that we really need to understand that our sin makes us less than human. Right. And, and that reminded me of that, that famous uh, quote, to err is human, which I bet a lot of people, especially outside the church, but maybe even some church people would mistaken as scripture. Right. And, and so I researched it because it does sound like something you would hear from like Paul or Peter in one of their letters. Uh, it is not from scripture. It is from Alexander Pope one of the great English poets of the 18th century. He died shortly before America declared its independence. And so I'm wondering this, what is the relationship between our emotions and our sins? Are they tangled together? And if so, how do we untangle them uh, enough to accept our emotions without self-justifying our sins? Yeah, um, they, they are entangled to a degree, although um, you can sin without it being emotional, and you can have emotions without, without sinning. Yeah. Um, emotions in and of themselves are not, um, I mean, that's how we're created. I think in a podcast we had not too long ago, you talked about how fear is this natural response. Uh, that God has given us the response of fear to protect us. And I think emotions serve to protect us as well, uh, that, that there is something built in within, within emotions that helps us navigate life. And if it, you can't navigate life without it. So, so I, I believe that you could be 
unduly controlled and driven by your emotions. I think James talks about being driven by your emotions uh, to sin, but I think you could also be so dispassionate that you're not driven with a passion for the call of Christ and sin in a, in a maybe in a different way, a sin of omission. And, yeah. and so I, I don't know that I think that sin and emotions are necessarily one and the same because we all have emotions, or at least we all should have some level of emotions. I, I think the failure to control emotions, uh, the, the, the failure to recognize emotions, right. um, I often talk about attitude, that, that we can either control our attitude or our attitude can control us. Right. And I think it's the same with emotions, that emotions can control us and drive us. And, and one of the challenges we have, not just as Christians, but as human beings, <laughs> is to control those emotions so they don't drive us, that we contain them. Not, not, not in a bad way, not that we mask them. Uh, I think one of the ways we contain them is we recognize them and we experience them. Uh, so, so grief is a, is a natural emotion. You should have grief. Sure. You, shouldn't, you should not try to, to hide that. And as a matter of fact, Jesus gives us this great example. When Lazarus dies, what's he do? He, he weeps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, Jesus cries. And so um, emotions are not bad. Emotions are part of the created, uh, the way we were created. And, and, and they, they're natural and they should be expressed, but they should not control us. Right. And I guess uh, you're right that we did discuss this. I think it was our very first one of these holy highlights uh, a couple weeks ago. And I think I've, I've spent a lot of time personally reflecting on this emotion thing for, for a lot of reasons. One, I have seen too many Christians using, uh, trying to attempt to control other people's emotions, I think, to give them just a sense of control in this uncontrolled time right? Like, I've seen a lot of, if you have fear, that must mean you don't have faith. And I'm like, does, that doesn't seem, that seems too neat and tidy to be real or truthful. Um, and interestingly, then, if you, you know, don't have uh, enough faith, if you believe that thesis, then the whole reason somebody would point that out to you is to just make you feel shame, another emotion. Right. Um, and, and I'm also aware that uh, the church historically has been atrocious with emotions, right? I mean, we were one of the chief uh, perpetuators of taboos around addressing mental health needs and, right. and seeking good support, counseling, et cetera, for depression and anxiety. And um, I'm pretty open about it, but I've, I've been going to a counselor for about five years now, uh, both when I still lived in Pennsylvania and then again when I moved here. It's part of my self-care. Um, I, I go to a counselor for the same reason that I go to worship and that I pray and that I at least try to eat well, like it's about stewarding well the life God has given me. Um, and I've been amazed, like, because I'm open about it, how many Christians come up to me and say, I really appreciate that you're so open and candid about that. Like I've gone to counseling for years or I take this antidepressant and I've never wanted to mention it in church right. because the church has historically been this really judgmental zone um, where we have really tangled up emotions and sins and we, we've castigated people for it. And so I think that's one of the reasons I loved this sermon so much is like you got into the emotions 
and and you you let Jesus have them. You let Jesus be terrified, and you let Jesus be sad, and uncertain. Yeah, and uncertain. Yeah, what a great one. Like we, like the perfecter of our faith has uncertainty. Boy, that really should mean something right. for the rest of us. Right. Right. Um. So that was part of the big blessing for me. Uh. So yeah. Um, let's see what else here. <laughs> I didn't mean to talk so much about your sermon, but you could tell I was, I was really all in on this one. Uh, the point about, and I think Mara made it that when Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak mm-hmm. is really just, uh, Jesus commiserating with Peter. And I really like that. That's a nice, uh, I think it's really easy to throw, all of the disciples under the bus. And I mean, especially Peter, because he's always the, you know, kind of the class dork who has to raise his hand first, even if he doesn't have the right answer. Um, but I think we, we throw the disciples under the bus to our own peril. I mean, more often than not, we're not better and maybe a fair bit worse than Jesus's original followers. So when we belittle them, we really just belittle ourselves um, and we'll never level up. Do you see what I did there? I worked your sermon theme. Good, good. Yes, uh-huh. that's awesome. Yeah. So we'll never level up in our faith if we just keep belittling ourselves spiritually. Right. So do you see other ways that we might miss Jesus nurturing us instead of scolding us through the ways that we misread the disciples' actions? And that can be the, the story you talked about at Gethsemane or really any of them. Right. And, and you see it, I think in the Bible, you talk about conviction as a, as, a, as a good way to describe this because conviction is a good thing because conviction is God trying to draw something better out of us. It's not that God's smacking us in the back of the head just to knock us in the back of the head, but his discipline is meant to grow something within us. And so I always, I always tell my boys, and my boys all play sports to some level, I always told them, don't worry about it when the coach is saying something to you. Worry more when the coach isn't saying something to you. And and I think all of us as Christians, I'm more concerned when God's silent in my life and not convicting me on things than I am when when he's saying things, because that means that there's still room to grow. Uh, I think another good example, you know, Jesus is so harsh with the hypocrites or, or the, the Pharisees. And, and, and the phrase that he uses is, is hypocrites. And, you know, hypocrite basically means actor. And, and we, we see that as such a, a, a slam. Now, he does slam them at times when he talks, calls them, you know, whitewashed tombs. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty bad. Uh, but when he calls them hypocrites, it's an invitation to take off the mask. Yeah, uh, Jesus is not slamming him, saying, listen, there is something authentic you can live. Take off the mask. It, it's okay to be real. Don't fake your way through it. And so we see that as a slam that I really think Jesus is inviting them to something better. So you see that throughout scripture, uh, that, yeah. that, that there is a mixture. Yeah, there may be discipline. It may even feel harsh, but it, it that the harshness is something to draw something better. It's an invitation to something um, that, that's, that's more beautiful than what they're living. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. And uh, I think it would be, you know, especially if somebody watching this has always read the Gospels in a certain way, especially like taking hypocrites as the ultimate, like Jesus throw down slam. Um, 
who looked at somebody like Peter and when he steps out the boat and starts to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus, if you know, if you in your uh, mind tisk tisk at Peter for that action, like to reverse the readings here, uh, to be impressed that, you know, before he sunk, Peter actually walked on water, right? Two like people did that. Yeah, two people did that. Peter's one of them. If I did that for three seconds and then drowned, I would count my life a full success. Because I'd be like, for three seconds, I did something that only two other people in the world have ever done. Have you ever heard the good joke about the walking on water? I don't the think so. The Presbyterian pastor, the Catholic priest, the Nazarene uh, pastor was in a boat. And so the Presbyterian pastor walked to the shore and got his bait. He said, I forgot my bait, went and got it. The Catholic priest goes, oh, I forgot my fishing pole, walked to the shore, got his his pole and Nazarene pastor said, Hey, I can't be left out. So he got out of the boat, tried to walk in the water and sank right to the bottom. Catholic priest turned to the Presbyterian pastor and said, should we tell him where the rocks are? <laughs> <laughs> Bad preacher jokes. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's good. So yeah, I hope we, we interrupt our own readings of scripture with some of these, these new insights, like, a Jesus who calls the Pharisees hypocrites because they're putting on airs and they're deceiving themselves and they're not accepting themselves for, for the, you know, God created, God loved um, creatures and, you know, elected members of his people. Like, you let, like let that be enough uh, rather than trying to put on those airs to, because I do think we, when we belittle, other human characters in the scriptures, that's a two, that's a double-edged sword that's going to come back and it's going to cut us spiritually. Yep. Uh, and I don't think Jesus is actually doing that in most of the, the, the gospels. I think we import that in. And I thought, uh, again, Mara made it uh, a really nice observation. What if Jesus is commiserating and saying, I get it. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I mean, look how weak my flesh is. It's starting to seek what? Right. Yes. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Um, you also discussed the differences between obedience and trust. Mm -hmm. And I love this because in addition to being a pastor, I'm also working on my PhD in Christian ethics. And now that I brought up my PhD, viewers should know that this video will only last another two and a half hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there and, you go. Yeah. And I thought this part of the conversation really got into an important part of my ethics. And so if you'll indulge me just a little bit. In my studies, I focus a lot on virtue ethics, and that is learning to do the right and holy thing as an instinct of the soul rather than as a rational decision. Most contemporary ethics, uh, modern ethics, is about making the right rational decision. But, and we're living in one of those times we we don't know the right rational thing to do in the middle of a global pandemic that only happens once every century, right? Like there's not enough point of reference. And so virtue ethics is beautiful because it says, listen, you can't account for every potential occurrence, but you can cultivate the sort of character that even when you encounter something for the first time, your soul is oriented toward the right and holy thing and you can trust it. Mm. Okay, so that is um, virtue ethics. And they talk a lot about character, having the right character to do the right thing, even in uh, obscure circumstances. And so I saw in this discussion about trust versus obedience, 
something relevant to virtue ethics. It's, I think obedience is an action we undertake intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like any good habit, it will produce character in us, which in this case would be trust. So we, we continually practice obedience even when we don't want to, even when we only do it half-heartedly, but we continue to practice it as a habit that grows into a character. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess my question is, do you think it is better to put obedience and trust on a spectrum rather than see them as potentially opposing behaviors? I don't believe they're opposing behavior. So, so I, I believe, and I don't, I don't think a spectrum is correct either. I think they're two sides of one coin uh, that, that obedience as we are obedient to Christ, uh, uh, ho hopefully let, let, let's go into a, uh, uh, earthly relationship as, as my boys have been obedient to me. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that they've realized that I have their best in mind. Mm -hmm. And so eventually they, they, will hopefully, or they have hopefully done what I ask, not because they have to be convinced, but they know that when I'm asking them to do something, it's not only for, it's for their good. Mm -hmm. And so there's a trust that's built in the obedience. And, and, and I think it's the same with our relationship with God, that, that as, as we obey him, sometimes we may obey just because we, we feel like that's the right thing. We've been taught that's the right thing. We, we read the Bible, that's the right thing. But we don't connect that to trust. But, but I think in doing these action, it, it builds that relationship. It builds trust. So, so I don't know that I, I don't see them as opposing ideas. I think they're, I think they're complementary. I think they're hand in glove. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I think that obedience as a habit can build your trust as a matter of fact, I think most of the time our trust will grow, not just by our trust growing, but our trust will grow by walking in obedience. Right. And I guess that that is what I was trying to describe uh, in terms of virtue ethics, that trust is the virtue that we want to have. as, And it's it becomes, you know, as intrinsic as we can to our soul or to our character. It becomes our disposition towards the towards God is to just trust. But we only get there walking that sometimes hard road of obedience. Right. Uh, and, and, and the goal is not obedience. I, I mean, right. God's goal for us is not obedience, but relationship. And, and so obedience can become um, doctrine or dogma. <laughs> I mean, you can have a list of do's and don'ts that you, you do because these are the things you do and don't do. Uh, but, but the goal of God is not just to set up a guideline of things to do and things not to do. The goal of God is to, to get us to a place where our relationship with him is, is growing and we know him more and we trust him more. Uh, you know, faith uh, is, is what God's calling us to, not just, um, not just to a rule of ethics. Right. Yeah. Uh, so as you all focused on obedience more in, and this is still in the podcast, I forgot to mention that all the questions so far have been, uh, someone said that sometimes choice is better than attitude. And so do you think that choosing something even against our attitude is just a, maybe a more specific form of dying to ourselves, uh, at least in that we sacrifice our attitude in a much smaller way of representing the God who sacrificed his son. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good question. Um, 
and I think it brings us back to what we talked about earlier. We talked about attitudes and emotions. That that there is a sacrifice of our emotions and our attitudes to God, and and the, and there's this ideal that that you know truly none of us are probably going to die on a cross, and and most of us don't die daily physically. So when when He calls us to be living sacrifices, there has to be something we're giving up other than our physical life, and, and oftentimes that that's our own will. Most of the time, that's our own will. Uh, most of the time, that's our our right to be number one. Uh, most of the time, it's a right to, uh, uh, to to have a particular attitude. So, so yeah, I mean, to, to die to self is obviously, uh, obviously when, when Jesus talks about that, when Paul talks about that in Romans 12, 1, to, to become a living sacrifice, it, it is not a physical death. Uh, you know, living sacrifices are alive. And so he's calling us to give up parts of our life and and the ways we view life and as opposed to just our physical body dying physically may be the easiest thing we ever have to do as christians <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean especially western christians where most of us it'll just be like heart disease or something right yeah. like it's uh um and and we have hospice care to nurture us all the way into it so uh yeah absolutely uh yeah i think i just think there's good news there like if we have an attitude that wants to serve God, trust God, be obedient, etc. Bully for us, you know, like if that's happening to you on this day, that's awesome. It's it's not for me today because today's a Monday and I never have that sort of attitude on a Monday. Right. <laughs> so, but then sacrificing that, recognizing that even when that attitude's not there, that's not necessarily a moral failing. That's no. actually a really great opportunity to go ahead and live out some of this sacrificial life, right? Like, and again, such a much, much smaller version of what we see with Jesus on the cross, but right. but participates in some of that and, and glorify God's, glorifies God to a degree in that. Like it, our sacrificing our attitudes uh, when they're not the appropriately oriented attitudes has a share of the glory of cross and resurrection. And maybe that can motivate us to do it better um, on days when we don't want to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. So let's turn to the worship video. Uh, I was glad to see you included a video of your dog. I did that too a couple of weeks ago. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a. I don't have a question for you. I just like dogs. Yeah. Yeah. He's crazy. He's nuts. Yeah. He's sick of us. I'm. I'm sure. Yeah. That's. Uh, our dog already had separation anxiety before this happened. And now he has literally been in one of our presents for over two weeks. Yeah. I think this is day 15 where at least one of us has been with him. So when, when we're done, like when we can leave and we both leave, he is going to destroy the whole house and anxiety. It's going to be so bad. So, Um, So yesterday I took him with, I take him in the car with me. He likes to ride in the car. Yeah. And so I, had CDs for people that didn't have internet access of the audio of the sermon. So I went and, you know, put them on there, sprayed them with Lysol, put them in bags, put them on the front porch, told them to leave them there, didn't go and visit people. But he was so sick of being with me yesterday that he sat at the gate at the bottom of the steps and just begged to go upstairs and lay in his bed. (laughs) (laughs) He knows how Terry feels to be with me all the time now. Terry and your dog are commiserating with one another. Oh, man, I'm so sick of being with him. So 
so much sometimes. It's too much, really. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the worship video and, and not just the dog, but, you know, the actual proclamation of good news, uh, maybe one of the biggest questions slash insights I had on your sermon on the worship video is that we know uh, what Jesus prayed on Gethsemane. Like, we know the words. Right. And it's pretty clear that his disciples weren't awake in recording him word for word, right. um, which leads me to assume, uh, and you can tell me if you don't like this assumption uh, in a minute or if you want to nuance it, but it leads me to assume that the only reason we know this story of Jesus at Gethsemane, since all the other witnesses are either absent or asleep, is that Jesus told it to his disciples after he was resurrected. Like somewhere along the line, mm -hmm. uh, after he was raised, maybe it was that, that fish fry on the beach that they had, um, that they talked about all that had happened and, and that Jesus shared what he was thinking and feeling. Like he revealed his interior life mm -hmm. to his disciples. Uh, and if so, this means, I would assume that Jesus wanted us to know this story because he knew that we were also going to face times, uh, such times and trials. So what else might have motivated Jesus to, to share this story? Can, can I give you an, another possibility here? Okay, sure. In, in the Gospels, they talk about the naked guy uh, that, that's there. I think it's in Mark's Gospel. Talks about the naked person. Remember, they, they, they grab his robe and he runs away naked. I believe that's John Mark. I believe that when Jesus had the Last Supper, uh, and a lot of theologians, a lot of historians believe this was in John Mark's house, and John Mark was one of those bystanders that were watching uh, from afar, and I believe John Mark followed them to the garden and was watching what was going on, and so that's why we have this reference to the naked guy running in the garden. Now, that, that, that's my belief. Not that Jesus didn't tell them, but sure. that I believe that there are firsthand accounts from people that were observing them, okay. not necessarily disciples. I could be wrong, but that, that's the significance of the naked guy in the garden to me. So that uh, is, that's, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, if you're right, I kind of still want you to be wrong because the idea that we have the Gethsemane prayer I know. is the result of a naked voyeur. Uh, <laughs> Well, he wasn't naked when he was listening. Okay, okay fair, fair enough, but still. <laughs> yeah. uh, boy, I just, I feel more comfortable with my interpretation. <laughs> it's not creepy. It's not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, I guess we can't pick on naked guys in gardens. That has its own positive symbolism in the movie. But, um, well, the only reason I, I, I bring that up is what's the significance of mentioning it unless it has some connection to the story. And, and I believe yeah. it's in Mark's gospel. I didn't look it up before. I think it's in Mark's gospel. And so I, I've always thought that John Mark, some of the stuff, John Mark was there, or at least that's how I interpret it. But I also think, I don't know if it matters because I believe that, that Jesus wanted him to know this. 
that, right. that our Heavenly Father, at the very least, wants us to know that Jesus agonized over this. And if Jesus can agonize over things like this, then why do we think we shouldn't have to agonize right. over things God calls us to do? Uh, if Jesus is going to sweat blood, drops of blood, how do I think I'm going to walk through my Christian experience without having times where I'm just going to have to struggle with what God's calling me to do? Yep. And I should be clear, and I don't actually feel defensive amongst a, a Nazarene audience. I really don't, because I think we we share a lot of uh, tradition in common, um, and, and especially approaches to scripture. In, in talking about like the historical realities of how we got the Bible and its current manifestation, I don't mean in any way to imply that the scripture isn't spirit breathed, right? And that what we have there is there by God's will. That's clear, but it is, it's interesting to think about like how certain scenes got recorded because it's not like Jesus had you know, somebody with a, a smartphone following around recording everything and making TikTok videos out of it, you know. Um, there wasn't a modern media the way we have today, especially not a 24-7 news cycle. No TMZ. Yeah, no TMZ, you know, Jesus walking out of the club late at night or whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, obviously that story is there because the spirit needs us to know that story. And And what you said is true, that the, the purpose is pretty clear that we're meant to struggle uh, or there will be struggles. We're not meant for it, but there will be struggles and that we join in the Christ, in the struggles with the Christ uh, who, who struggles alongside us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't want to take anything away from that point. I just am enchanted by the idea that Jesus at some point just wants his disciples to know that so plainly that he's willing to lay himself bare you know, and say, yeah. while you were sleeping, here's what I was experiencing, you know, it'd just be another way in which Jesus embraces the emotions of the moment while still being perfect and holy. And he embraces them in, in your view, in, in the way you're explaining that, he embraces this in the resurrected body, which as we understand the fully resurrected Jesus, the human resurrected Jesus is in the presence of God, and he has remembrance of what yeah. it meant to be human before the resurrection. Yes, yes, absolutely, that uh, Jesus ascends in bodily form to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, judging the quick and the dead, to, to borrow from the Apostles' Creed, and and that he sits there whispering to the Father, like, I understand. here's your compassion. Here's, uh, you have to understand what they're going through and all their frail little human bodies. Cause I was there too. Uh, and I'm still there, yeah. but now I'm in a glorified human body. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. That awesome. theology gets missed, I think too easily when we make Jesus a spirit. Um, but no. Yeah. If Easter is not about the physically resurrected Jesus, you're, you're missing the entire point. Yeah. This is yeah. a ghost. Yeah, and it's definitely oh, we're getting yeah. Easter already. We need to we need to live in in the, the only week first. But that's but, true. That's true. We will we will get to Easter um soon. All right. Uh so last question, if you want to, anything different you would have focused on or no, I to to be honest, I, I pre- preached this twice and, and I wasn't happy. I went home and I just wasn't happy because I didn't get into the to the um to the um, uh, to to the um, God portion 
of, of Jesus, the, the fully God portion. I only talked about the human and I, I thought I did a disservice. What, what I would like to explore, I didn't have time in the sermon, you know, you have 15 minutes, but, but I think there's something significant in those characters merging with regard to reconciliation. That, that, and, and I've not seen anybody really address this, that when Jesus is reconciling those two, two aspects and those characters and making them correct, I think, and, and, and maybe you can correct me if somebody's addressed this in, in a clear way, I think this is something to do with the, rec, the reconciliation that Jesus is bringing. He is bringing our character and God's character together. And, and so when Jesus calls us to be holy like his heavenly father is holy, when he, when he calls us to, when we are called to have the mind of Christ, all these things uh, are dealing with the reconciliation that God brings on the cross. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I haven't fleshed that out in my mind, but, but at some point, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about atonement and what the cross means and what's going on there. And, and I just really had not thought of those things in that manner before. Yeah, your sermon did make a really great point about, like, it's not just uh, a frail, quaking Jesus who is fully human, uh, present at Gethsemane, and if we can look forward to the cross, it's also a God who continually submits God's self for the sake of his creation, right? I mean, the right. incarnation is its own form of humiliation, if you're God, his own form of um, sacrifice, uh, just by condescending. Right. Um, and then we see it again at the cross. Um, so God humbles God's self, God submits God's self, doesn't cease to be God in these things, is still the almighty, all-powerful, etc., but can is willing to risk that, uh, is willing to, to be humble, broken, dead. And uh, that should change everything about our own submission. And uh, that's, that's the beauty of Philippians 2, that you know, Jesus, although he existed, could be Jesus because he existed yeah. with the character of God, was willing to yeah. empty himself, which is a significant difference in, in how you view that passage. It's, it's not Jesus letting go. It's Jesus letting go because he is God. Uh, that, right. that that's his character is to let yep. go. And, and when we talk about classical descriptions of God, we do. We focus on the big, the powerful, the all-knowing, the, you know, all-present. We don't focus on, and it's an essential character of God to describe him as fully submissive, yeah. even, even perfect in his submission. Right. Like our submissions pale in comparison. <laughs> you never talk about it that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the church loses something uh, in failing to do that. And what the church loses is the church then becomes a, a, um, a place where power and control is exercised and celebrated because we begin to see God in that image. Wow. But when we, when we create the church in that image, we're, we're missing uh, the image of, of our God and the image God wants the church to be created in. Oh man, you want to talk about doing a PhD, there it is. I mean, the church's uh, historic and even contemporary issues around racism and sexism, like those are all power structures. And you're right, the church that celebrates the all-powerful God and not the also all-submissive God does begin to worship power and control. And we've seen that manifested in ways that don't glorify God, clearly right. don't right. glorify God. And it's, it's not only uh, a failure of our morality, it's in part a failure of our theology. Our theology was incomplete 
um and so no that's that's really good that's uh yeah you got a few sermons you could do out of that um so would you say then the best way to level up is to get down or like level it up to get to level up you got to get down yeah yeah to gain the whole world you have to lose yourself yeah that's uh yeah. i think that's in the bible somewhere i think it might be it might be well i look forward to the rest of these level up sermons they're going to be the month of april is that what i understand yeah and um yeah yeah so Good. so we'll have fun with them would you uh mind saying a prayer for for us Nazarenes, before we go i absolutely would and i'll just i'll pray that they can find the rocks uh, good, gracious, holy, loving, powerful, and yet meek and present in weakness, God. We give you thanks that you have made us bodies and souls and minds and hearts. We give you thanks that you understand us entirely, not only because you made us, but because you have come as one of us. Yes. We, we pray that all of our own frailty find expression in you, that our weaknesses do not become places where we pull away, but that where we are actually drawn into you. We pray for our world right now that does feel mighty weak, feels afraid, feels vulnerable. We we pray that uh, you be that you are present with us in that, um, and that we might grow to have the same character and courage as you to to ultimately pray not our will but your will be done. Lord, I pray that you make in the Nazarene Church uh, here in Marysville just a, a whole congregation full of folks who learn to pray not my will but your will yes, Lord. Uh, that that they can be a, a bright and bold witness to your kingdom come uh in the way they live um, pray that you bless them with that lord keep us safe and healthy uh this day and in these coming weeks pray this all in your most holy name amen, amen. god bless thanks brother yeah, thank you. Take care.